Christine are sitting there going, yes, you really do sound that strange sometimes in the Christian vocabulary realm, right? And those of you who've been around church a while, you go, oh my goodness, how much have we heard that phrase? I didn't grow up around the church, so I remember one of the first few weeks I was sitting in a worship service back in Newton, Iowa, Community Heights Alliance Church, and I kept hearing the pastor say, there's a fellowship hall. I'm like, what is that? I didn't know what fellowship was. There's a fellowship hall, and in the fellowship hall, you can have a fellowship meal. And there's like fellowship groups that meet in the fellowship hall having a fellowship meal. I just wanted to raise my hand and say, what in the wide world is fellowship? Anybody else been there? Well, over the next four weeks, my desire is to bring some clarity to what we term around here the together factor of the Christian life. That Jesus has always viewed a following of him as an us, we, and together thing. You may see some t-shirts around here that have a phrase on the back that say more, what's the next one? Together every day. And so if I could just hang a question over the banner of this series as we dive into what does it really mean to be a body of people who are together? Here's a question that I want us to walk around and unpack over the next month. Question I ask myself and I ask you is, do I have the kind of relationships in my life that help me seek God? Do I have, do you have the kind of relationships in your life that help you seek God? We're going to do this out of Luke 24. So open up your Bibles, Luke 24, and we're going to walk the Emmaus Road with a couple of disciples and talk about what it means to be together in the name of Christ. So setting of Luke 24 is this. Jesus has just been arrested, crucified, buried, and placed in a sealed tomb. And we've got a few disciples, Mary and Joanna and a few others are going to Jesus' tomb and they've brought some flowers and some spices, much like we would do today to go and honor a gravesite. So this is where they're at in Luke 24. So let's pick up the storyline, verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, so they go to the tomb and what greets them at the tomb is the stone has been rolled away and there's two angels seated there ready to explain to them that Jesus is no longer here, who you've come to see and remember. He is not here. He has been raised. So the stone has been moved and two angels seated there. That would be a unique gravesite visit. Agree? And so they're like, huh? So here's these two ladies, Mary and Joanna, when they came back from the tomb, so they take off, they told all these things to the 11, that would be the 11 disciples, and to all the others, the other group of followers. In verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Verse 11, but they did not believe the women because their words seem to them like nonsense. I'm glad that only takes place back in first century Israel. (laughs) That never happens today that the group of women would be misunderstood by the men. Just imagine with me that that might be a problem. Okay, can we all go there? There might be some communication issues here. And the apostles in their defense, 
Their whole world has been turned upside down. They couldn't process what they had just experienced. They put all their eggs in Jesus' basket. Remember, they mostly left everything that they had before, a fishing business, a tax collecting business, family, friends, physical geography. They left everything to go all in with Jesus. And though Jesus tried to prepare them for the ending, he did that many times, by the way, and I'm so glad the disciples are so much like me, like us, right? Where they're just kind of slow to pick it up. Although Jesus has told me many times, hey, Simpson, this is really important. You really need to see this. And I just, I forget or I don't really internalize it. And that was them. They couldn't put together that he was going to die that kind of a death and that he was going to be buried in that kind of a tomb and that it would be sealed and there'd be two Roman guards and it looked like it was just all over. And then these ladies are running back from the tomb and trying to, right, before they even catch their breath, like, the tomb, the rock has moved, Jesus isn't there, he's alive. And they're just like, you guys, you, know, you need to go back to wherever you, you know, you need to, whatever you were doing last night, you might need to check what it is you were eating and drinking is what they're probably thinking. Verse 11 they didn't believe the women. Verse 12, Peter, though. Peter, however. Now, how ironic is that? Because where did we leave Peter off in this whole sequence? Peter's the one who, when it got really tough, he bailed, right? It was Peter who said, you know what? I don't know that man. Not once, not twice, but three times. The rooster crows. Remember a couple weeks ago, I showed you the church over in Jerusalem that's built with the top of the church has a cross and a rooster sitting on it? It's a church to remember St. Peter and his wrestling with doubt and his denial and his struggling to piece together the story. That's the same Peter. And now Peter's the one, he hears this and he jumps up and he runs to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Can you imagine? Put, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute. He's thinking where he left off, looking at Jesus across the courtyard, remembering he had denied him, the eye contact that Jesus had with him. And then Jesus goes to the tomb, and this is the next time now Peter's thinking, wow, so much unresolved inside of him, right? How much he longed to have just one more conversation. Many of you who've sat, right, beside the bedside of someone who you're saying goodbye to, and they pass away. And one of the hardest things for us is when we long to have just one more conversation to maybe bring some closure to some unresolved thing. That's Peter right here. So now, verse 13, and here's where we're going to be camped for the next four weeks, the rest of this story. The NIV has a little header there. You see, on the road to Emmaus, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them. So that very same day, we've got two of the disciples who aren't there in the immediate scene. They've already exited and they're headed back to their hometown. We'll find out in a moment. One of them's named Cleopas and the other's an unnamed disciple. We'll have more discussions about that as we go along. But there's two disciples, Cleopas and another, and they're so rocked by what's happened over the weekend. They can't process the arrest, Judas's betrayal, Pilate selling out, washing his hands, the Romans flogging, how bloody it got, the crucifixion. This whole thing has just turned their life completely upside down. They probably left staring at the sealed tomb. It was too quiet for too long. So they looked at each other and said, it's time to go home. That's where they are. It's time to go home because they're not quite sure what to do next, so they're, they're gonna go home. And so they're on this road 
They're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, so a seven-mile walk. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Can you imagine that conversation? Can you put yourself there on that road? Some of you are on that seven-mile walk right now. You're on a journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and you're in this space that Richard Rohr calls liminal space. Stay with me here. The word liminal comes from a Latin word, limen, L-I-M-E-N. I put it in your notes. It means that, that space in between. It, it, it comes from a word for threshold. You're, just, you're about to move into something else, but you've left usually at the hands of a crisis, Either it's been inflicted upon you or some things you have done yourself. There's a crisis that's gone on and you've had to release and let go of some things the way things used to be and you haven't quite, yes, got a hold of what is going to be. Are you with me here? This space between what used to be and what's going to be, this space in here, this is called liminal space. The space of the Emmaus Road between the now and the not yet. Are you with me? Between the now and the not yet. Have you figured out that God loves leading his people into liminal space? If you haven't figured this out yet, the relationship's going to go a lot better as, as we embrace this concept versus trying to resist it. This is Noah. Follow the biblical storyline. It filled with this. This is Noah being invited to start building a boat. God said, I pick you, time for you to build a boat. And then he's led into 80 years of liminal space. It didn't start raining for 80 years. Can you fathom that? Noah, he's doing what God wants him to do. He's preparing for a lot of water in the middle of a desert. And the Neighborhood Community Association is going ballistic over what's happening out in front of their houses this is a really large boat, and it's 80 years. This is, this is Joseph given a dream that he's going to be a, a significant leader for his people. And then he's sold as a slave, tossed into a cistern, and forgotten in prison. And that's all the space in between. This is Moses, to whom God says, I pick you. You're going to be a big part of getting my people out of captivity in Egypt. And then it's 40 more years before they get to the promised land. And when I wandered around in a tour bus through that desert area, it was way more comfortable inside the tour bus with the nice AC. Because we had one day when the AC on the tour bus broke. And can you picture 35 North Americans? in the middle of the, of the wilderness desert of Israel. It's 95 degrees. I'd like to think our Jesus-like character came out. It wasn't very good. It was, we were just so whiny. I mean, we were just, like, all we wanted was air conditioning. I thought, how about Moses trying to lead a few hundred thousand Israelites wandering around this desert trying to get to their promised land? They just keep circling the hot burning sand with no other bus in sight. Thankfully, within a couple hours, another bus comes and gets us. Wasn't that way for 40 years? Liminal space. 
This is Peter and Andrew and James and John and Mary and Joanna. This is them witnessing the weekend and standing at the sealed tomb, waiting in the silence. This is Cleopas and the disciple walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is the journey between the now and the not yet. And I think this is our first insight into what together in God's eyes really means. And the first principle I kind of harvested out of this is this, that together means we're gonna have to make a choice. We make a choice to walk with each other in liminal space. In that journey between the now and the not yet. Do you have some kind of relationships in your life who will walk that Emmaus road with you? Because look at verse 14. What did it say? They were talking with, you might want to underline in your Bible, each other. You see that in verse 14? About what? Everything that had happened. Was that a great story to tell? That was hard stuff. That was, you ever been in those places? You know you're on the Emmaus Road journey when you're with people and you can't quite put words to all that's going on in here. There's just so much you're experiencing. There's so much unraveling. There's confusion and uncertainty. Liminal space is an amazing place for the roots of faith to grow down deep because their soil is so ripe for that. Because faith can't flourish without uncertainty. And do you know what a common denominator is in liminal space? It's filled with uncertainty. We can't see what's beyond that next threshold. We just know we've released, we've lost, we've relinquished, we've let go, and we're in this space yet to grab a hold of what's next. And God's driving those roots of faith down deep. And they're talking about that kind of stuff. Verse 15, what does it say? As they talked and discussed these things with each other. Do you see that? There's an intentionality between Cleopas and this disciple to go on this road not alone. I have to confess to you, my wiring and temperament is when I get to liminal space, I just want to unplug, withdraw, and go it alone. That's me. That's where I want to go. I'm going to go find a monastery in the middle of nowhere where a bunch of people aren't even going to talk about anything. We're all going to be in silence. That's where I want to go. Now, there's a place for silence and solitude. But the point here is there's a place for the necessity of relationship on the seven-mile journey in liminal space. It's always meant to be an us-together-we thing. Even the most introverted among us still need people. And it's rooted in our, it's really a Trinitarian theology here. Do you remember, those of you around here, when we were doing our series through the Old Testament a few years ago, remember we camped out on what it meant to be a people made in the image of God, to be stamped with the Imago Dei. And we reflected on this truth that at the core of being a human being, stamped with the Imago Dei, means that you come wired in the image of one who is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're made in the image of a God who is three and yet one. And that three and oneness means at the core of our Imago Dei is a need to interconnect with other people. That's why still today, our prison system would say one of the deepest and darkest penalties they can give a prisoner is what? They place them in complete, solitary confinement. And those psychologists who study those individuals who go months and months with zero human contact, their word is this. They say, the people literally come undone. The medical term for it is, they go crazy. 
what is that? Because the violation of their mago day. There's something about the being made in the image of God who is three that there's this movement, you see, embedded in the nature of living as a human being is the need to be interconnected with other people. And then specifically when you get to these places like an Emmaus Roadwalk, it really elevates this situation because you try to go it alone on that seven-mile journey and that's only going to go one place and it's not going to go very well. And now notice what happens to them. They're walking, they're talking, they're discussing, and notice what happens. Second part of verse 15. So they're, they talk and discuss these things with each other, and then verse 15 continues. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Isn't that amazing? Jesus comes up. Now, we're going to see that they're withheld from recognizing him. We'll get into that more in the weeks ahead, but just stay with me here in this. Jesus joins them. Notice they're not having a Bible study. Notice they're not singing worship songs. Notice they're not in a prayer meeting. They're just two friends going on a walk, and Jesus joins them. Do you see that? And at that point, here's the second kind of truth for today about the together element. The second point is when we're focused, right? This is the point when our community takes a turn. We're focused on being with Jesus while we're with each other. You see, when those two have this conversation with each other on this Emmaus Road and Jesus joins them, that's when the friendship becomes spiritual friendship. That's when the community becomes Christian community. The presence of Jesus joining their presence together. And this is what separates, this is why it's important for us to be reflecting on, do we have the kind of people in our life who help us pay attention to Jesus? Help us seek God. That he's joined us on this road, the journey between the now and the not yet. Do you have that? Do I have that? Because this is what separates community, relationships, friendships from spiritual community from Christian community, from sacred companions, the kind of people who come alongside of us and who help us focus not on just each other. Do you know that when you have community focused on just the role of each other being the end point, that's not sustainable. This is an illustration why so many marriages begin to implode at some point. At some point, you just get baseline really tired of each other because if that's just the end game, is just each other, Memo, what's coming is you're really going to get tired of each other. And our culture today says, well, you just go down to the courthouse and get a piece of paper and move on. But God's trying to give a vision for an interconnectedness with people that you got to put Jesus in the center of this thing and you make Christ the end point and then the relationships are sustainable. That's why if you've ever been in a small group setting and the small group was just centered around relating to each other. That's got a life cycle and a ticking time bomb. That's going to implode in just a matter of time because you're all going to get tired of each other because you're all a little bit quirky and weird and different. We all are at different places. And you start rubbing on each other's, you know, whatever issues and you just get tired. You're like, I'm out because it became just about the relation. The focus was on each other versus Jesus and each other facilitating a connectedness to him. Do you see that? So when we say together in the body of Christ, here's a distinguishing element. 
when we're with each other, we're paying attention to Jesus, and that's what makes it sustainable. And each other is central to help us pay attention to Jesus. I know I need people on the Emmaus Road to help me recognize where Jesus has joined me on this journey, because I don't see it. I'm like Cleopas and the disciple. I don't see who's joined me here. And I need the kind of companions. I need spiritual friendships. I need Christian community that help me see that Jesus has joined me in this liminal space between the now and the not yet. Listen to how Ruth Haley Barton puts it. I put this quote in your notes here. When our dreams and convictions about what we think community should be are dashed against the jagged reef of human limitations and failure to live up to one another's needs and expectations, then and only then are we ready to accept the fact that Christian community is not about us at all. It is about the transforming presence of Christ, all he will do in and through and for each of us. Do you follow that? Have any of you experienced your hopes and dreams, I think another writer called it the wish dreams of Christian community, dashed against the jagged rocks of human limitations? Anybody been there? Where you put all your eggs in this basket that this certain pool of relationships was going to be for you what God never intended those relationships to be. You can't make those relationships the end point. Christ is the end point. Those relationships facilitate a connectedness to him. And that's why I think the most important relational question we can ask ourselves in the body of Christ is, do I have the kind of people in my life who help me seek God? That's really, really important. And we've all got to answer that. What it looks like, that doesn't matter. But that, it, that you have those relationships, that's critical path that help you seek God. That matters whether you come into this series and you're like, oh man, pastor's talking about how important it is for us to form relationships. And some of you are sitting here going, I'm on relational overload. You're so relationally exhausted, you can't keep up with the current relationships in your life. You're like, I can't form one more. And then others of you are kind of in the relationally jaded category. You went down these roads before and you got hurt and burned and there's been betrayal and there's all this baggage and you're just like, I'm giving up on the human population. You're, I'm going to the pet population. I'm just going to hang out with dogs and cats. They're a whole lot less complicated and difficult and messy. Well, at least dogs are. I don't know about cats, you know. But at least dogs are less complicated that way. And some of you just choose, you know what, I'm done with humanity. I'm going, you, you're following me here. And then others of you, though, are just kind of so relationally lonely and you're just tired of trying. You pressed into these points before and been dashed against the jagged rocks of human limitation. And the heart of hearts is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes here. I put Bonhoeffer's quote. If you don't know much about Bonhoeffer's life, I highly commend his biography to you. But he learned about Christian community. He learned about the Emmaus Road walk. He learned about spiritual friendship. While he was growing up in Germany under the Nazi regime and Hitler's power, and he decided he was going to take a stand against all the evil that was taking place, and so obviously he was arrested, thrown in prison and concentration camps. And in the environment of the prison, in the environment of the concentration camps, he began to speak openly about Jesus and people began to come to Christ and he began to invite them into a community. And so their community was formed behind the barbed wire. And in April 1945, the Nazis said, we've had enough of you, so they execute him. That's Bonhoeffer. And listen to what Bonhoeffer says here. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. 
the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one, hear this now, and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another holy and for all eternity. That's Christian community. That's spiritual friendships. That's the kind of relationships that are going to go on the seven-mile journey between the now and the not yet. And every single person walking, desiring to live a life that honors God, to pursue Jesus, we've got to have the kind of friendships vitally connected to us that help us seek God. It's a non-negotiable. Students, this is why Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock is critical path in your walk with God. From 4 to 6, what is so significant about that? Is that, hey, that's a window of time where you're going to get together and the focus of that time is not just connecting with each other, though that occurs. The focus is help you see God. Students, those relationships, that matters more than any other relationship circle you're in. That matters more than the locker room that you're a part of on your sports team. Matters more than the theater group. It matters more than all those things. All the other groups that you're a part of, as relationally spread out as you may be as a high school student. This is the critical path decision. Do I have, am I cultivating the kind of community that helps me seek God? That will walk with me on the seven mile journey between the now and the not yet? That's why four to six, I think, is a non-negotiable. And Parents, this is where we need your help. Whether it's middle school on Sunday mornings, do you realize critical path for middle school students around here? What's going on from 10 to 11:15 in the loft? Do you know parents, you're central to this. Middle schoolers can't drive themselves yet. Which is why when the student ministry plans anything for a middle school event, it's all parent dependent on parents prioritizing that's going to be central for the home. And so whether it's Sunday mornings here or Sunday afternoons for the high schoolers or the life groups that meet at other various times, this is the central component. Parents, do you see at the end of the day what's going to matter for our kids more than their GPA, more than their varsity letters, more than their college applications, as important as all that is, do you know what's going to matter at the end of the run? Who they're becoming their character, their spiritual development? Are they the kind of young men and women who grow up, who can relate in a healthy way with the diversity of people around them? That's going to matter so much. Are they men and women of compassion and integrity and honesty? That's going to matter more than the seven whatever participation trophies they're going to get for whatever travel league they're a part of. What's going to matter most is who they're becoming. Do they have a vision of who God is so they can understand who they are? That's what's going to carry them. When they get in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, they're not going to sit with you at the table and say, Mom, Dad, I wish you to sign me up for one more. You fill in the blank on this. But I think there are going to be a lot of conversations about some of the gaps in the character and spiritual development front. And that's why as parents, we got to decide now that what they do matters, hear this, but who they are matters more. And we got to decide that. And we got to prioritize it and we got to hold the fort on it. Because the culture around us isn't pushing us anyway on this direction. Because as you choose to do that and you say, you know what, this is going to be a yes and this is going to be a no, you get under this banner of where you're depriving your kids of these experiences. No, you're just saying a more important yes is what you're doing. The more important yes is this. 
What they do does matter. All that stuff does matter. I get it. Studies matter. Extracurricular activities matter. There's just something that matters more. That's all I'm saying, mom and dad and students. And I'm just asking you to take a deep, hard look. Is the stuff that matters the most, the stuff that's going to matter 50, 60, 70 years from now, is that stuff getting top priority on the relational choice decisions in the household? I think it's got to start with us as adults owning it, trickling it down through our students, and then eventually to our kids. The younger kids, lower level, same deal with all them. All the small group stuff going on this morning. I can't think of anything more important in a young person's development than the kind of connectivity they have from 10 to 11, 15. They've got adults together around God's word, learning what it means to what? Know who God is. Help them see God. Memorizing scripture, learning about prayer and worship, walking the Emmaus Road, because we all know there's going to be plenty of journey between the now and the not yet coming for these young people. And why not foster that kind of community early? Not wait till you get into your 30s to look in the mirror and say, I don't have anybody. But we got to decide that now. And same holds true for us as adults, right? We look at this whole issue, whether you're relationally exhausted, relationally jaded, or relationally lonely. At the end of the day, I think we got to look in the mirror, and I think if we really believe Jesus is right, not just about some things, that we believe Jesus is right about everything. That's why I follow him, by the way. I've just determined he's right about everything. He's not just right about the big things, heaven, hell, sin, salvation. He's right about all that. He's right about everything. And he said it all comes down to this. Simpson, at the end of the run, you're going to look back, and it's going to be four words. Love God, love people. That's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's all going to come down to that. If I really believe that, then the question I have to ask myself is, do I have the kind of people in my life who help me pursue that? And if I don't, there's got to be some things shifting around. There's way too much at stake here. And whether you're newer to the Eagle community, you've been around here a long time, you know we're pushing a rock uphill on this issue. I get it. I know we are. When we launch life groups and we do immerse groups and we do classes and Bible studies and all these things, do you know what's a common denominator from all of that? It takes time and intentionality and investment. At the end of a long work day, you have to actually get in your car and you have to actually probably drive somewhere where there's going to be a group of people whose main agenda is to seek God. And we do that because we always have known this. It's an us, we, together thing. I'll close with this point and then we'll transition to the communion table. I put this final quote on your notes here. Rose Mary Doherty says this, Unfortunately today, because there is so much isolation and loneliness, people often get confused about what they're looking for in community. Boy, isn't that true? They are unable to discriminate between companionship of interested people and the community of people who can help them seek God. You know, that what distinguishes if you're going to, you know, you could be a part of a community of the Boys and Girls Club or soccer group this or PTA association. Those are all important and good relationships. Neighborhood association have all kinds of relationships this way. But Jesus would just come and say, hey, in the midst of all those relationships, what about these relationships? Follow this now. Spiritual community makes real our seeking and supports us in that seeking. If I really believe Jesus is right about everything, 
then at the top of the stack for my relationship, the question is this. Do I have the kind of people in my life who will help me seek God, who will walk the seven-mile journey between the now and the not yet from Jerusalem to Emmaus, who will help me open my eyes and see that someone has joined the conversation, helps me pay attention to Jesus while we're paying attention to each other, that each other matters, but it matters for us so that something bigger. We're together to connect with him. He's the centering reality which I can't think of a better application of our time this morning together than what we're about to do. We're going to the communion tables here in a moment. And do we recognize this is the centering element of what brings us together? As a diversified humanity, do you know what's the centering element, the common thread here, is we're here because of what the table represents. If it wasn't for what Jesus did in laying down his life and shedding his blood and rising from the dead, we're not here. There's no eagle church. There's no spiritual community. There's no Sunday morning worship gathering. It's all about him. It started with him and ended with him. We're here because of Christ. And this table, I want you to think of this table this morning and you go to it. I want you to think of the table as the table for the Emmaus Road. This is Jesus saying, I'm coming alongside you. You're like Cleopas, another disciple, right? You're there, his broken body, his shed blood. He's with you, Emmanuel. He's with you. And then when you see the line of people gathering around the table, just have a moment where you just kind of look at the diversity of humanity that comes to the table. And here's the each other so that we seek him. Do you see that? There's the unity and diversity together in the body of Christ, and it's all because of him. And that's what we do when we go to the table. We remember what he's done, we recognize we're not alone, and we worship him in spirit and truth when we take the elements. You don't have to be a member of Eagle Church to partake of communion here. If you've never had communion here, here's how we do it in just a moment. I'm gonna pray and dismiss you to the tables, and you can gather around any part of the table, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then you just spread out wherever you'd like, all around the room. You'll probably see family and friends and small groups gathering together and praying together. If you want to have some private time to yourself, prayer altars are open. Some of you come with some pretty heavy things going on in your life, maybe some physical stuff, and you want prayer for physical healing. We'll be glad to pray for you up here, anoint you with oil. We still believe God heals today, and so you can be prayed for, and part of the communion service element is that. So you just come and kneel here if you'd like someone to pray with you or for you. And then we're just gonna have some time and space to do what we've just been talking about doing, to be together in the goal of being with him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that because of what we've read in Luke 24, we're gonna walk to a table and we're gonna grasp a communion that's available on whatever personal Emmaus road we're walking. And so you've told us to do this in remembrance of you, and we do that right now. We remember, and we worship, and we receive these elements. And I pray that you administer your healing grace and companionship to all who come. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed to the tables.